Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this month's UK Roundtable, we look at how the UK supply chains have suffered under unprecedented forces, from the coronavirus to Brexit, and if or when we can expect our supplies to start flowing smoothly again, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, James Binns, Global Head of Trade and Working Capital for Barclays Business Bank, Stephen Peters, Senior Portfolio Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. So we're going to focus back in on the UK again with our monthly roundtable series where we bring together a range of experts to look at certain aspects of what's going on in the UK uh, or certainly what we can do in, in around 20 minutes or so. So at the centre of the debate in the UK at the moment is is supply chains. And I think you know perhaps some of us are, are spotting perhaps some issues when we look on supermarket shelves and and you know are being agitated to shop for Christmas early, which I have to say is falling certainly on deaf ears for, for me. But more importantly, thinking about food, fuel, wider consumer goods, etc., and and of course petrol at the pump. So how we access those have rarely been more in the spotlight than they have been in recent weeks and months. So whilst snarlots in the world supply chains seem to be resolved and thinking about what time period will be central to what that means for the longer term impact on inflation and interest rates in reaction to that. It is one of the key post-Brexit debates around supply of labour, supply of goods, and of course, much more besides that. So today, I'm very, very happy that we have James Binns with us. He's one of our in-house senior experts on the subject of supply chains from the Business Bank. James, hi, thank you for joining us. Nikki, it's a pleasure to be here and hello back again. Brilliant. And also one of our uh, fairly regular contributors, Stephen Peters, who, as usual, will, will share with us what fund managers think about when they are looking at this issue. He's one of the key team members accessing fund managers that that we utilise in client portfolios and in our own range of funds. So hi, Stephen. Thanks for coming back. Yeah. Hi, Nikki. Always a pleasure. Brilliant. And as usual, we have Will Hobbs, our CIO. And as usual, hi, Will. Hi, Nikki. Um, By the way, I disagree with you on the Christmas shopping. I've already on to my seventh box of mince pies, just to be clear. They they definitely don't count. But Will, let's let's if you would get you to set the scene. A lot of eyes were on the Bank of England. Clearly, they they elected not to raise interest rates last week, but that seems to have been met with a bit of criticism in in certain corners. So, how how do you see things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there was let's say some surprise expressed in markets. In the Bank of England's defence, the job of the central bank is is fiendishly hard at the best of times. You know, they're basically trying to get the economy to travel at its optimal speed, not too fast, not too slow, using very blunt tools when they can't actually see what the optimal speed is and it's always changing. Now, that job is particularly hard at the moment because that optimal speed is particularly obscured, um, not so particularly, but obscured by all the distortions of the crisis and Brexit, frankly. And it may have changed, that speed may have changed quite a lot. Again, Brexit and the pandemic, uh, the digital leap forward forced on many of us over this last couple of years, they're all probably influential. So the outlook for inflation globally 
is incredibly interesting, hard to see at the moment. So on Wednesday night, we had the hottest inflation print CPI in three decades in the US. And you've got this kind of hall of mirrors operating between central bankers and bond markets. And with bond markets watching what central bankers are going to do and trying to anticipate what they're going to do and judging whether they're going too fast, too slow, not not quick enough, and vice versa. Bond market, you know, central bankers are trying to read what market, what expectations are with regards to um, how investors are perceiving the path of interest rates and inflation and all these kind of things. So it's incredibly disorienting in truth for both sides, I think, probably. Uh, and so you're seeing quite a lot of volatility in bond markets. Uh, you know, yields are you know flying up and down. They're providing much more excitement uh, in portfolios than they usually should. That's usually down to the stock markets. And it's meant to be bond markets providing the antidote, but that's not the way at the moment. And like you say, supply chains are at the centre of all of this. So, you know, I would second your view. It's very nice to have James on this to actually talk authoritatively rather than uh, me to have a go at it. Well, OK, and, and no pressure, James. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so, so Will is just led you into that. But it, it would be really helpful, I think, for our listeners to hear, if you can just, just help position for us, why is supply chain so stressed? And which areas in particular, or is it across the board? Well, I, I suppose let's back up for a second. And if I look back across the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, the thing that's really struck me is throughout that, there's been a confluence of issues and factors which have impacted supply chains throughout. And as the months and weeks and so on have gone by, those, the confluence of those factors or the makeup of those individual factors has changed. And really where we were at the start of this year was economies starting to reopen. You had the big stimulus program, which President Biden announced in the US, which was $1.9 trillion and was estimated by many analysts that that would result in an extra $360 billion worth of uh, imported consumer goods into the US this year alone. Um, so that coupled with other economies opening up, other stimulus programs globally has resulted in a massive spike in demand. And that massive spike in demand has put supply chains under enormous pressure. It's put supply chains under enormous pressure simply from the point of view of a shortage of raw materials. So the price and availability of raw materials has become more volatile. But equally, labor across you know, all the different sectors, manufacturing, service sectors, and so on, and not just here in the UK, there has been a shortage of labor to some extent. And of course, all of that has impacted transport and logistics as well. So we've seen the cost of raw materials go up and become scarcer in places. We've seen labor, again, become scarcer and shortages appear and the cost of that go up. But equally, transport and logistics, that $360 billion worth of goods I referred to earlier on represents a lot of containers. So demand for containers is through the roof, which has meant, again, their availability and price has gone up. Uh, if you look at the World Price Index, the average cost of a 40-foot container at the moment, or as of the 11th of November, was $9,200, which is 250% higher than exactly this time last year. If you look at some of the individual routes, container routes, the picture looks even more difficult. The Shanghai to Rotterdam route, on the 11th of November, the spot price for a container, 40-foot container, was $13,800. That's 498% higher than it was last year. But it's not just containers, it's also air freight, it's also rail shipments, and it's also truck shipments. Uh, again, the price of those has gone up. And again, that's a combination of a number of things. It's a combination, A, of that demand, 
um, but B, of some of those labor shortages, which from the point of view of containers means the velocity of containers through ports is slower than it, met, than it was before or needs to be now at least. So it's exacerbating that demand problem. And I hear stories, for example, whereby even containers that have reached their destination, been emptied and go back to the port to get filled up again, can't get back in the port because there isn't enough room to store those containers because of so many containers waiting to leave ports. So all in all, therefore, what we're seeing is that volatility being introduced broadly across supply chains. And it's just really interesting looking at some of the examples that are out there. You look at the you know, there's the chips, uh, chip industry and how that's impacting uh, the auto companies. So, uh, you know, the big car manufacturers and the shortages that we're seeing there. Apple recently, as part of their annual, resu annual results, announced that for the next 12 months, they'll be making 50% less iPads than they originally proposed because, again, of this chip shortage, because they need to support their new iPhone model production. And, you know, looking very specifically at the UK, the CO2 crisis, who knew that we had two producers of carbon dioxide in this country? I didn't. I also didn't appreciate... Oh, what we used it for. Uh, exactly, <laughs> how broadly used it is. Everything from, you know, meat processing to nuclear power. So we're just seeing all these shocks emerge across supply chains, in some instances caused by quite small things and things that would other, were otherwise quite hidden. And it's all part, as I said at the start of this, of that confluence of factors which are having uh, you know, this dramatic impact on supply chains. I mean, it sounds like a perfect storm, but is there any visibility, James, as to when might we expect any kind of normalisation? I mean, it seems like some of the surveys are, are suggesting perhaps we're at sort of peak supply chain stress in, in some industries. Is, is that something that, that you'd subscribe to or do you think there's more to come? Well, I suppose there's, there's one thing to say, are we at peak? Uh, and I think we're hopefully not going to get much worse than we are now. But then, of course, the next question is, how long is all this going to last? Uh, and when is it going to start to dissipate? Uh, and I think if, you know, I try and read reasonably widely and look at various indicators, and, and what I'm hearing is, I think this will be here to stay for a while. Uh, if you look at some of those components, factors that I talked about earlier on, labor shortages. Uh, so if we look specifically at the UK, obviously Brexit is an additional complexity for us in terms of uh, access to labor pools, which the other countries around the world haven't had as a new uh, element of complexity to deal with. It will take time to train up some of those skilled people that we need, butchers, HGV drivers, et cetera, et cetera, to fill those gaps. So those, those are issues that can't be resolved tomorrow. Equally, uh, it, it will take time for raw material shortages and some of the inventory issues to unravel. And containers, you know, once container cycles are disrupted, it can take months or, and, and many months sometimes for those to start to settle down and get back to normal again as well. So I unfortunately think this is here to stay for a while. But let's not forget as well that the underpinnings of this are increased demand, which will hopefully also drive good value as well. Okay, always nice to have a brighter, <laughs> exactly. a brighter note. <laughs> and, and Stephen, just bringing you in here, because James just mentioned 
certain companies, certain sectors, so Apple, you know, the impact on their iPad production, auto manufacturers, etc. When you are talking to the fund managers that invest for some of our clients and in our funds, what are you hearing? I mean, obviously, we've got earnings season. Are you seeing that impact from the supply chain issues follow through into stock, stock market activity? Not yet in activity, I'd say, but I would definitely say it's a topic that the managers are aware of. Um, One thing they're not talking about is Brexit. That may change given Article 16 and all that kind of stuff. But um, they're definitely not talking about Brexit. But in terms of supply chains, I mean, I'd reiterate some of the things that James was saying. Although, I mean, there's definitely some of them are a little bit more optimistic, saying we've had issues in the past. I think they referred to one in kind of 2006, seven, where there were ships stuck in outside of ports. And um, as quickly as these blockages happen, they go away. So some of them are talking about that. But just to add a little bit of kind of nuance, there's definitely one manager I spoke to recently was saying that there is a definite link between the quality of the company and labour shortages. So the ability for them to hire. The way they did that was they took a well-known website where uh, employees can go on and Um, talk about the company they work for and how good it is or isn't. And then they uh, cross-reference that uh, figure or those figures with the companies, uh, how they report and how they comment on how easy it is to grow labour. And in short, higher quality rated, higher rated companies on this website are finding it easier to find labour than lower quality companies. So clearly the, the people out there looking for a job are preferring to work for the better companies than the less good ones, which is a uh, you know maybe touches on on the kind of ESG angle and and particularly the S. You know people want to work for better companies. And then in terms of supply chains, there's a few comments. There's the risk that some are seeing that order books will be inflated. Companies, you know, if you take the, uh, the stereotypical example of somebody needing a you know a five dollar chip, they instead of ordering from their main supplier, they'll go and order from a couple of suppliers, and then the first one that delivers happy days. And they'll just cancel the orders from the other two suppliers. Both of those other two suppliers will have kind of recorded those in the order book, but they will never come through as, as sales. So we may see an issue down the line where order books don't translate into sales in some sectors, which may be a, an interesting challenge for some company analysts to process. And then finally, I'd say some UK domestics are using it as an opportunity. There's one company um, which uh, I won't name, but retail or sells people sofas they're using it as a bit of an opportunity and are looking to increase or change and increase their the number of shipments they make from china to the uk containing sofas so they're taking opportunity or making making it a bit it a bit of an opportunity at the moment again the better companies will have prepaid and front booked their shipping containers coming to the uk so then may not be feeling the price rise that james mentioned earlier now, but it may feed through for later in later years. Got it. And James, just on that, anything to, to follow up from, um, interesting there, what, what Stephen was saying, that actually some of the fund managers are, should I say, banking on or, <laughs> or, or thinking, you know, there, there could well be a quicker way out of, of some of these blockages I think it depends on on different supply chains and, you know, to Stephen's point, how different companies are managing those. But, you know, just to go back to some of the core issues and how that's resulting in, in you know, corporate behavior, I think the number one priority on most businesses now is, or uh, the number one on their agenda is supply chain resilience. 
Uh, everyone is talking about resilience in their supply chains and understanding how they can predict the unforeseeable and prepare for the unforeseeable. Uh, and, you know, broadly speaking, I think there's some really interesting things that are, are coming out of that. One is, you know, does my supply chain have the right level of funding across it? Can my suppliers fund themselves adequately and at a, a cheap enough price to be sustainable? Another point that I think is quite interesting, and Stephen kind of alluded to it, is large buyers are starting to put scorecards together or consider scorecards for some of their suppliers, their key suppliers, not just from an ESG perspective, as we've been hearing for some time, but now also from a logistics perspective to make sure that they do have the quality of logistics in place, the contingency in place, etc., to deal with some of these issues uh, going forwards. Another thing that we're starting to see a lot more of now is changes in inventory management. Uh, you know, the old way of doing things was always just in time, keep cost to a minimum and stock to a minimum. But now it's really become just in case. So average stock levels are rising to cater for, you know, future volatility. And again, you know, to your question earlier, that will help to deal with some of these problems. If people increase their average stock levels going forwards, it will iron out some of those, you know, potential problems in the, in the future. And then the final thing is around diversification of supply chains. I think buyers are now looking more carefully at concentrations within their supply chains, not just to single suppliers, but to individual countries and working out whether they need to diversify across a broader set of suppliers, geographies, and in doing so, potentially, you know, nearshore or bring some of those um, supply points closer, again, to iron out some of those potential volatilities in the future around you know, transport and logistics, for example. But of course, all of that, or a lot of that will result in additional cost to suppliers or to buyers or to both, and increased working capital requirements as well from a funding perspective. So yes, these are all things that can help deal with some of this volatility uh, in the future, but they also come with consequences in themselves as well. I'll just add on that very quickly that the concept or the notion of onshoring or reshoring was one that I explicitly asked a couple of managers about. And uh, as yet, and obviously this takes a long time, yes. but as yet, the listed companies that they're seeing are not yet doing that. So, you know, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be uh, become a, a world leader in sofa manufacturers or Christmas tree decoration <laughs> makers yet, but maybe give it a few years and, uh, and we'll see. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, your average supply chain takes many years to be put together and to achieve the level of efficiency that they currently do. And therefore, they are not very easily movable. But you're right. People are looking at this now. And I think over time, we may see some changes. And just on that, James, just, just thinking about potentially for the workforce in the UK, it sounds like potentially really good news that that, that, that could bring jobs back to the UK. Is that, is that something that you're forecasting or expecting to happen? It depends what type of jobs. I mean, I think to the point that we just made, it will take time. It takes time to move manufacturing. It takes time to reshore supply chains. And so I wouldn't expect to see any major impact in that regard uh, in, you know, in the near future. But I think from a British perspective or UK perspective in terms of labor forces, the good news is demand is returning. The economy is growing again. There are labor shortages out there. There are skills shortages out there. Um, and assuming those are addressed, 
then there will be opportunities for people in the UK in terms of higher paying jobs, the ability to, to learn and generate or accumulate skills, et cetera, et cetera, which ultimately will hopefully make us a more productive economy. Will, so you've just heard James talk about potentially how this could impact the UK. Stephen was saying about the fund managers seeing potentially some scope for, for manufacturing movement. What do you think about this? Because I know that you're all about human ingenuity and <laughs> humankind rising to the challenge. Where are you seeing things going? Yeah, I mean, it's not like I don't think, you know, I mean, the factories of the future are probably not going to be filled with people, are they? I don't know if you guys disagree. I mean, I, it doesn't. I agree. Yeah, it's not really that way, you know, and I don't think some people sort of yearn for a return to the old days when Britain made stuff. But the reality is that quite a lot of those jobs, particularly going, you know, if you go back further to the factory jobs of old, they're dangerous. They are hard, you know, in a way like we, we're lucky we sort of migrated in many senses up the uh, up the ladder of jobs. And I think, you know, just one, one thing I always look at with this, because people always wonder, you know, it's kind of dystopian vision of, uh, you know, factories without people and where are people going to get the jobs and so on. Uh, and actually, you know, one of the sort of sources, slightly odd source of reassurance is the US Census Bureau. And what they have to do basically is register new jobs. And if you look over the last century, basically what you see is a history of the new jobs that have come in, because as new jobs reach a certain scale, they then become worth the statisticians taking notice of. So if you go down in 1900, obviously 40% of your your workforce is agricultural. Now it's just 2%. You go to 1940s, you know, the new jobs, uh, automatic welding machine operator, 1960s, tax specialists, chemists, 2000s, vascular surgeon, 2010, sommelier, now, obviously, that's a job uh, that uh, that came in, you know, that's been there since the foundation of France in the 18th century, but it only shows up in the US in 2010. The quality of jobs will vary, maybe, but, you know, over time, what you've got, to, the whole point is that the that the economy has continued to create new jobs. And it's an article of faith, I guess, that the economy will continue to create new jobs for people and uh, and that they won't, you know, the old jobs sort of disappear over time. But it's it's not something that we can provide sort of concrete reassurance on. But certainly the history of development teaches you that, you know, we, we should have some faith here, I guess. It sounds like a, a sort of evolving process. And, and Stephen, I'll, I'll let you have the last word. We've honed in on the UK, albeit in the context of everything that's going on globally. But I think, you know, one of the things that we often talk about is the importance of diversification beyond these shores. But I think as, as investors sitting here in the UK, there is some comfort in the fact that UK equities are perhaps being seen to be very good value or certainly trading at at fairly cheap levels. What's your take on that? Is that something that we can take some comfort from that perhaps UK equities will will no longer be poor relation, if you will, of, of the global markets? Well it's been very fashionable, hasn't it, to be it is fashionable to fashionable to be negative on your on your home market and and uh, that's been the right thing for a number of years. The UK has underperformed peers because of name your reason, Brexit, lack of a tech sector, you know, currency issues. But uh, as I've spoken about on this podcast, you know, in recent times, whilst mainstream equity investors and asset allocators still sit on their hands somewhat, US private equity companies have not and have come in and have bought up a huge amount of UK PLC in the last 12 months or so, attracted by, as you say, cheap valuations. 
overall, what would I say? I'd say that uh, long term, mid and small caps have been the engine of growth in the UK and the UK stock market. However, right now, the the largest companies, the large the FTSE 100, you'd say, looks pretty good value with its own challenges, be it ESG or whatever. But they do look very, very cheap. So um, whilst it's fashionable and whilst it's you know uh, natural to only look at the biggest companies in the UK and then probably disregard them in, in many cases. It's always good to be invested and it's always good to be spread around because you get different sources of return, of course risk, but you get different sources of return from investing in large, medium and smaller companies. And uh, I think if people can stay invested and be diversified, as always, that's a, a good place to be. I've always said there's nothing special about being fashionable. well well on on that note steve and james well thanks very much and thank you to our listeners and subscribers and we'll be back with you next week all investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance this podcast is not a personal investment recommendation